Live from the shadow of Toronto's CN Tower, it's a special on-the-road edition of the Film Comment Podcast. This year, we recorded an episode at the Toronto International Film Festival, the enormous annual launching pad for over 300 films, big and small, from avant-garde to shameless Oscar bait. I was joined by a group of critics, editors, and programmers to discuss and debate the key films they'd seen at the festival. Our roundtable included regular podcast participants Nick Pinkerton and Eric Hines, Toronto critic Adam Naiman, Metrograph programmer Eliza Ma, Film Society editorial director Michael Koreski, and the editor of Film Comet, Nicholas Rapold. You won't hear much about the malfunctioning escalators that were the bane of festival goers this year. But we hope you'll forgive a little incidental microphone static here and there. Just think of it as sonic excitement. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor and today I'm joined by... Michael Koreski, editorial director of the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Nicholas Rapold, editor of Film Comment. Eric Hines, associate creator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. Nick Pinkerton, Art Forum. Uh, Adam Naiman, contributing editor for Cinemascope. Elisa Ma, head of programming at Metrograph. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. This is probably the largest group of people we have ever assembled for this podcast. And why not? Because this is TIFF. So instead of trying to take the temperature of the festival, which is a dumb question, I think we're just going to go around and uh, talk about movies we've all seen, hash them out. So let's start with Manchester by the Sea. Mm. Um, I really loved it. I mm. cried a lot. Mm. What do other people think? I think it's extraordinary. I think it's an amazing film. And I think that it, the way it works in terms of narrative is entirely to itself it's very a kenneth lonergan film but it also is doing things quite differently and yeah and there are two uh scenes in particular that i think are two of the most powerful scenes i've ever seen in a film and they've stuck with me since i saw it back in sundance so i'm glad that people are seeing it now i mean i had an unusual reaction to it in that there's two tragedies in the film and one is a very commonplace tragedy and one is less so and I thought that as long as it stayed with the relatable tragedy, I found myself incredibly moved by it. Um, I don't know if it was just imaginatively projecting myself into that kind of grief having to do with a sibling or like the fact that it's really well-written, well-directed, well-acted, like I was with it. And when it got to the second thing, I just thought that there was a, there was a swinging for the fences there narratively that didn't connect for me. And I found myself kind of fighting it from that point on, whereas Margaret, which is kind of not as well organized and not just as put together as this is, I went with the craziness and the dispersal of that movie more than this. Like, this is a good film, but I was sort of really underwhelmed by it, especially when it kept insisting, maybe in a couple of the scenes that Eric mentioned, which are good scenes, but there's these scenes that just seem to be insisting at me, like, you'll feel something, just did not. Um, that's interesting. I, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the, the use of music, which is very strange. And I wouldn't say I was put off by it the first time I saw it because I've seen it two times. Um, but I was I was struck, certainly struck by the choice of music. And you say there are two different types of tragedies in that very extreme type. Um, he ten, he chooses to use this uh, Handel music, and and you know Margaret ends with the scene at the opera. So this tragedy is conveyed in a very operatic way, and it's a very it's a very strange choice because it's so insistent, like you're saying. And the second time I saw it, it's almost like I didn't notice it. It might be because it didn't seem like it, it was there to reveal. It wasn't a revelation anymore because I knew it was coming. It, it seemed more of like an internalized grief that it was almost um, the music was coming 
from somewhere within as opposed to the director laying it on thick. I don't know why I felt that way the second time, but the second time I was very moved by it where I, I was a little more detached the first time. But it's a strange choice. Yeah, I mean, I felt like in regards to the music specifically during this sort of the big reveal of the more um, inexplicable, fantastical tragedy. For me, it felt like the voiceover in like something like the Thin Red Line where it's like, that's not literally what they're th- thinking. It's what they're feeling. It's like, it, and to say that everyone can have that breadth or that astute of emotion or sort of a breadth of emotion that sort of unites us all. And I think that the music is kind of trying to push you away but it is definitely what that character is feeling in that moment and his inability to like process it is part of i think what makes it what makes the music and sort of the aesthetic choices in those parts make sense in terms of that film and maybe this applies to other films but i do feel like there's a there's an element of a lot of these films that show up at toronto have played at other festivals and some of us have seen them at those other festivals and I think the way that films are received in in one festival often affects the way that they're received at the next festival. And I think that's something in terms of readers and viewers are concerned is something that I think can be quite confusing to sort through in terms of different levels of reactions because sometimes we're reacting to other people's reactions, none of which have to do with what people are actually seeing when it comes out theatrically. Right, like Manchester by the Sea is probably, it, it peaked, let's say, even though it hasn't come out yet and it's great and we'll all be talking about it and it'll get nominations and all that, but it's sort of peaked in the festival circuit, whereas Moonlight is peaking right now, like today Moonlight is peaking. So people are talking about that movie in a very immediate, passionate way. Well... We can switch over to Moonlight. This is another movie. It's an example of something that you know we had seen a little while ago, but it's it's just now making its way around. When I first saw it, there was certainly the sense of it being so directed, so stylized, so perfectly conceived down to the smallest detail that it almost almost like it was yeah there was something over overdone about it perhaps. But I think what people why people are reacting so strongly to it is not because of the filmmaking necessarily, even though it's very striking, but because it's giving people a perspective they feel like they haven't seen before. And that's very, it, that's very powerful generally, but it's also very of the moment, if you know what I mean. There's, there's something um, maybe, maybe too of the moment perhaps about it, but it's a wonderful film. Well, I mean, I was going to say, I think this story has been told before, but it's been told like not very well and it's been told in a very loose naturalistic style and it's like stayed in a festival circuit and it hasn't gone anywhere and i think the type of formalism that you see in moonlight is really kind of not in vogue right now and it's and it's written someone who finds that type of filmmaking very energizing and refreshing and beautiful it is to me i think it's i'm really excited that it is getting around and people are seeing it and i think it is perfectly in tune with exploring this and expressing the story. Absolutely. This is all sounding more formally analytic than I remember, remember experiencing the film for me. Oh, it's so emotional. Yeah. It was a very, very kind of visceral, emotional reaction to the people on the screen in front of me, especially in the second and third segments of it. uh, I just thought those actors just nailed it. I mean, the, the second guy, he just finds a way of just having this more or less a grimace for about half an hour straight that is hugely expressive about about his entire being at that stage of life for him and then in the third one it was amazing performance for me because it seemed like at any given time you could see this totally built gangster (laughs) and see the little guy inside him at all times at the same time as you're seeing the, this guy, you know, putting on this front. And literally putting literally, on fronts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, literally putting on. Gold fronts, gold grills, chain fronts, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so that's that's almost what I responded more to than the very carefully designed aspects of, of the film down to the control of, of the color and, and the costume and and, you know, the, the you know, long wide shots, this, this you know, scope approach of it in the landscape. Um, it was just the, the people in front of me. But like another specific reference, I'd say for the moon, this isn't to talk too much about moonlight. It's not a criticism of it. It's just an observation because there's a lot to observe about it. Yeah. Like, so you have these three parts and this character, he doesn't change. The point of the film is that there's these outward changes and changes to his life, but we're following one character, one subjectivity, but he has these different aliases at different points in his life. So he's little when he's little. And then there's one point where he goes by his given name. And then in the last section, this name that he's adopted for himself is black. And so you have this third title, which says part three, black. And I see that and I'm sort of like, well, this is a movie of the moment. And it's very much aiming to be because there's a double, triple entendre that's happening by putting that on the screen. It's a kind of summative thing about what the movie is, not just the character's trajectory, but larger experiences that it's sort of gesturing towards. And I'm, it's, it's weird to sort of, not as a flaw, but to sort of point that out as a kind of liability because a lot of the movies that are here, and I will say a lot of the movies that are TIFF, there's no filmmaking intelligence in them at all. Mm-hmm. Like there's just nothing. The same way that there's not a lot in movies that are out in the wider world. So it does seem weird to sort of be like those smart structuring elements and those recurring elements are like not exciting. Relatively speaking, they're hugely exciting. And relatively speaking to movies that are at this festival or movies that are going to come out during Oscar season, Moonlight is good. Yeah. And I just and I just wanted to say uh, about Moonlight that so often movies that capture the imagination of the wider public or right now it's sort of niche, but I think it's going to capture a lot of people's imaginations tend to be suspicious of that. Whereas this is the kind of film that the excitement around it, I find very exciting. And it's it's really wonderful for film critics who, you know, we're always called so jaded and we, we, we're, that we're so distanced from the popular imagination, as it were. It's really exciting to see a film like this get accepted because it's it's pretty dazzling. Just quickly on that, I mean, it's rare, I, I don't know, in my limited experience as a human being, to, to, in the same season, <laughs> to, have, extremely to have limited. two movies, to have two movies like this and Tony Erdman, where you have that feeling that this is a movie, that it's not just all hype, you know, and that it is somehow a movie that is somehow building a bridge or, or in some way and opening up the possibility of, of appeal in, in exciting ways, because it's, it's offering, uh, you know, an access point to uh, interesting filmmaking, <laughs> Well, I think another film that it's using maybe old school genre technique in an interesting way and then like a really fun soundtrack is Nocturama. I know that's something you've seen. Yeah, I, to my great surprise, really went for it. Uh, Why were you surprised? Because it, it sounded like something that would be provocative in all the wrong ways mm-hmm. and button pushing in a way that I wouldn't respond to. And I actually just... I mean, it's very smart. He's a, Bertrand Bonnell is a very, very smart filmmaker. Uh, I, so the plot is basically a a group of young Parisian or suburban kids. It's a bifurcated film. The first half is them sort of pulling off a syncopated terrorist attack in Paris. And the second half is them uh, in hiding afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give too much away about too much of that because it is quite, it's not expected necessarily um, uh, how that turns out but yeah I just I I felt that what I wound up watching was less a provocation from a filmmaker though in some ways it is than an attempt to inhabit the point of view of the young protagonist of the film and so I feel like the film is an expression of the way that they wish they were seen and the way that they wish their actions are perceived and that's a very slippery thing and Mm -hmm. and I think I can totally see ways in which it 
maybe slides one way or the direction too much, but I was very invested in that in the project of the film. I find myself more and more these days watching movies and at a certain point having to ask myself, what possible use does this have for me? Um, and that more or less was my entire experience of Nocturama. And there's a coyness about it that I find very off-putting. And part of that, I think, is the fact that it is so scrupulous about avoiding hot-button topics. The fact that the terrorist act that it describes is very distinct from any kind of terrorism as we really know it in the 21st century. If it resembles anything, it's nearer to the sort of leftist... 70s, kind of, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a throwback act, the work of this very racially and in terms of class background, uh, diverse uh, group. Arguably gender, too. Yes. With the, with the yes. Shirley Bassey lipstick. Yes, uh, <laughs> unified only in the fact that they're all very attractive young people. And I couldn't, for the life of me, figure out what interest it held other than a kind of clammy formal exercise people seem to get a giggle out of like the willow smith reference and the sort of vapid consumer fantasy which makes up the second half of the film when the co-conspirators have all removed to a enormous department store and a la dawn of the dead are kind of living out these individual kind of uh consumerist fantasies I can I can only say that I just had no idea why I was spending my time with this thing. Um, I do agree with Eric that I think Bonello is a brilliant scenarist. I think his his compositions are so um, sublime, and you know, House of Tolerance is one of my favorite films ever. Um, you know, this film kind of applies the exact same sensibility to what is a very sensitive uh, subject. And I think it opens up the capacity for debate about uh, the treatment of the subject. Um, I, I still think about it a lot. I think that there are some amazing parts in it, and then there are some parts that left me feeling kind of flat. It's the same kind of anachronistic uh, use of music in House of Tolerance, there's the very emblematic Tears of Come mm -hmm. scene. And uh, in this film, Nocturama, the, there's a statue that gets burnt up. And one of the young protagonists is earlier seen uh, rubbing it with oil. Sort of magical, realist gesture. The statue starts crying tears of oil. I think it's a really interesting uh, film for him. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if I'm 100% on board. It, it seems to me just made up of so many kind of evasive maneuvers. It's about terrorism, but it's not really about terrorism. It's about being young. It's about being like young right now. It's about being like a millennial. And that I think what he really nails is that, you know, if you take the vast majority of millennials are totally pro-socialism, they're, you know, they don't like what big banks are doing. They're very left-leaning and yet and yet and yet there there's this utterly consumerist edge to them i interviewed Bonello and he said this and i think it's totally fascinating he's like you know they treat the store like it's their speaker and they do and it's just like it's this like little fantasy land and they can't 
they even though they've done this incredible thing and made a stand against like late capitalism, they're still totally unable to escape it because they're constantly being surveilled. They're constantly using these electronics. They're constantly, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it really nails how certain things are inescapable about society. And it's like, maybe we should rethink the way that we want to protest from now on. In as much as anything really resonated, I think it's the sense of the like accumulated weight of history that one feels in yeah. Paris. And I think as a movie about Paris, there's perhaps something there. Mm-hmm. Just the like sheer, you know, accreted heft of all of these monuments which are scattered on every other corner That's... and the way that as somebody who is completely you know divorced from the baron houseman paris and the sort of vision of france that that represents well one thing that i've been thinking about a lot i mean i've been thinking about this film a lot in the last couple days even though it's not my favorite film of the festival but it is something i can't shake i've been thinking about the fact that it does reference like the the terrorist act itself is very sort of 70s like um, and there are some anachronistic choices in music as well. What's so interesting in thinking of this, so to me it suggests the ways in which this is similar or dissimilar from that moment of mm-hmm. terrorist activity, of political action, which is that there was an idealism that fueled it yeah. previously. There's a utopianism that fueled that previously, and that's completely void at the moment. It's, it's, it's a movie, of, there's a void. There's a void in the second half of the film. There's yeah. a void in the first half of the film because there's really not... Though there's grievances and there's a desire for things to matter and to make a difference, there's just this great void in yeah. terms of like there's no real answer. There's no solution. And I find that quite powerful. I find that quite powerful just on a, on a, on a personal level in terms of uh, just emotional level. But I also find historically that is quite compelling. Mm-hmm. And I think this is not me forcing a transition, but it, it's certainly something that I thought about a lot watching Personal Shopper yesterday. Because I feel like that's about that as well. It's about trying to come up with an answer for that, whereas uh, Nocturama certainly just it's 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 a question that's hanging in the air, like whatever the, the end of, of Pierre Le Fou of like it's I'm a question hanging over the ocean, like it's that. Whereas mm-hmm. Personal Shopper is actually trying to traverse the expanse in some way. I think at one point uh, one of the characters is going through the shopping mall and he encounters a mannequin who is dressed exactly like him. Yes. And yes. then by the end of the film, they're all wearing clothes that used to be on the mannequins in in the shopping mall. Mm-hmm. But but really, I mean, it's ha- what happens when you you know because he he does glamorize so much in his films. I mean mm-hmm. that that's just his aesthetic. You know, um, he did the YSL film, and this is you know, the second part of the film could also be an ad for that shopping mall. So what happens when you dress up uh, terrorism in Isimiyaki but that, and but that's, Isabel Moran? <laughs> but that's why that's the first thing I was saying is that I think that, I think that's a self, I think that the, the, the idea of the film to me is that it's a self-projection on their part. So rather than him stylizing them, they are stylizing themselves. But that's maybe that's me giving it too much credit. I have yeah. I have a very real sense that this is one of these movies where I mean I look at it and my experience of it was really a kind of barren virtuosity but it's perhaps belongs to that category of movies where anything that you can say will immediately be rejoindered by but that's exactly the point <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you is that what I was doing 
Yes, you fraud. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say is you're describing movies that sort of uh, not defeat critique, but sort of deflect it by saying, I know you are, but what am I? Unfuckable, I believe. Uh, uh, Unfuckable. Yeah. I mean, in in watching American Honey, the the people who've liked it, some of whom are critics who I really like, suggest that, you know, the characters are vapid, so the movie's kind of vapid, or the characters are immature, so the movies are immature, the characters are sort of innocent and idealistic, so the movie doesn't have a really formed opinion of what it's about, or, you know, it's not by an American director, so its experience of America is sort of voyeuristic. And so I think that, you know, just to, to echo what Nick was saying, there's a lot of movies that there are ways in and out of them that are kind of equally valid. But watching something that I disliked as much as American Honey, which had just choices that I thought were ridiculous and moments that I didn't believe for a second and the kind of heavy symbols that she uses in everything, like the bear that shows up in the middle of American Honey is like the chained white horse in fish tank. Like she's the most literal-minded symbolist around and she's the most literal-minded use of pop music ever, maybe in the history of movies uh, in, in her stuff even though I think there's ways that you can validate that and say tell, that Tell us what you feel about American Honey. Uh, <laughs> even though there's ways that you can validate that and say that it's good, and I'm sure, you know... Uh, there's ways you can validate and say it's good. But... So you don't even bother, but... Go ahead. But, but, but even though we can accept that there's ways in and out of different movies, you, know, you can only go so far. So I'm, I'd be interested if someone wants to say something about why they like American Honey. Let's do it. But let, let, let's do it. <laughs> For similar reasons, actually, of Nocturama, which is interesting because they're very, 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 very different filmmakers. Um, but I think that I don't find those characters vapid at all in American Honey. I think that is a deeply empathetic movie that comes from the inside. And I think it's her associating and relating to kids. Um, like a cool aunt. Wow. Uh, no, no, I don't think it's like a cool aunt at all. I think it's somebody who's looking around the world for environments and neighborhoods and situations of people who she can relate to and feel like she's lived a similar experience. And I think that its use of pop music is incredibly literal, but I found it actually kind of thrilling because that's exactly how people around the world respond to pop music. They see pop music as a soundtrack to their lives. And so if a song comes on in a, in a supermarket or anywhere else or on the radio, they make it their own. Or they d- Dream Baby Dream comes on and they talk about their dreams, for instance. This is not a perfect film by any mention. It's a messy, too long film that is indeed too literal at times in its script. But I feel like that's coming from a place of conviction. That's not somebody who does not know what she's doing, who does not know that she's being literal minded or overly symbolic. It's the method that she's choosing. And I find myself asking why. And often when I ask myself why with her films, there's a lot for me to respond to. Um, Because I think that it's a deeply romantic movie. It's romantic. Um, not in the sense of, uh, you know, in a relationship sense, but there is, there's a romanticism there. And in, and in some ways, there's an over-exaltation of youth that I think she can be accused of. But I do find that to be moving because I think it comes from an attempt to empathize with people with having very little going for them and very little people advocating for them. And these are mockable figures that she is trying to make her way inside of. I find that to be a powerful uh, project. Um, I'm a little in the middle, I guess. I, I don't really like American Honey very much, but I don't hate American Honey. Um, but I think my response to the movie actually maybe had less to do with intentionality or even, um, you know, what yeah what her perspective is. I mean, I think these things are obviously extremely important. This film feels like there's a lot of space in it, right? So we're talking about a 160-something-minute movie, 
And, you know, people always make the case, well, it should be this length or this length. Those are ridiculous conversations. You, you know, deal with the movie that you're handed. And it just felt kind of like she was stretching things out to the breaking point for the sake of stretching them out to the breaking point. And so, and, and that being a byproduct of the way that she conceived it, shot it, worked with these kids. So you have like six scenes in a row of them sitting in a van, singing along to the radio. And, and it's, it's aiming for this reality, right? This verisimilitude of being with these kids when actually it, it does the opposite. It feels very fake, I think. It just becomes very constructed because it's, it's, a, it's a cinematic realism as opposed to like an idea of cinematic realism. I think, but it, you know, it's an, it's realism, but it's also romantic. Like I feel like it it rides that line. I think it wants you to think it's romantic. I mean, and, and it's good that you felt that. But like I, I felt like I was constantly being told that it was romantic, hmm. as opposed to genuinely feeling it from the mm -hmm. characters. Mm -hmm. I don't know. So you have these movies from Cannes, whether it's Tony Erdman or American Honey or the Delan movie. It's only the end of the world. I think Delan and Andrea Arnold are similar in some ways, where you know the films that were at Cannes this year were colored by the the reception that the awards this year were sort of weird. Like we don't have to talk about the Cannes Awards because we're talking about TIFF, but there seemed to be this kind of topsy-turvy critical establishment on those movies where it's like the movies that went home empty-handed, there's this sort of floating consensus that those may have been better, whereas the movies that kind of got prizes to, to a certain amount of the critical uh, establishment that was theirs kind of may have been worse. So I completely, you know, concede that for something like, um, that for something like American Honey, there was like a charged feeling in the Toronto press screening room of people like I really want to have a response to this and I wonder if it's going to be in line with or against what sort of happened previously and that goes into all of our responses about every movie and we can't pretend it doesn't well that, and that's what I was saying up top is I feel like there's something about that that I, I feel like we should challenge ourselves not only as critics but also challenge ourselves in talking about films that say the audience mostly hasn't seen yet you know, is that we're 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 carrying that around when it's irrelevant to what somebody actually might see for the first time. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe we could switch gears a lot and talk about another exploration of the world around us. Terrence Malick's Voyage of Time, a.k.a. the movie that expands that 20 minute sequence in Tree of Life into, I thought, a very wonderful, very beautiful. You don't have to be spiritual in any way to enjoy it film. Well, see, I want to challenge you to talk about it first, if you could, because I know that you were not necessarily a fan of recent Terrence Malick, and your reaction is the opposite of what I think a lot of people are having. So I would love to hear. Yeah, this is the thing. I remember seeing To the Wonder and just really disliking it and not getting it and thinking it was very frivolous and thinking it was just like Olga Kurlinecko or how you would pronounce her name, like blowing into a washing machine tube and dancing around and being like, oh, he just hated Ben Affleck. So he cut him out of the movie and you don't even know his name or what he does. And, you know, like I really I want you to narrate the entirety of To the Wonder. That way. <laughs> it was not the right time for me. And now I kind of want to revisit it because I know there's been a lot of really wonderful writing about that film by certain people in this room that makes me want to revisit it and reevaluate it. Um, but this film is very unique in that it's using a lot of National Geographic footage and then also some barely scripted stuff to um, just make a really wonderful point. Sometimes I almost wanted to cry because it was so beautiful. How can we be so awful to each other when the world around us is so endlessly fascinating and beautiful and it's miraculous that any of us are here at all regardless of what we believe um i, I just very quickly for a little context i just wanted to also describe the the, the two versions of this that's, yes this is important to do. say um so there are two two versions of voyage of time one is the 90 minute 
Kate Blanchett narrated full feature, which is what I saw, which is what, yes, which is what I saw as well. And then there's also an IMAX version, which is a 45 minute Brad Pitt narrated film that is the large format, uh, more family oriented from what I understand, because it's Brad Pitt narrates what you're seeing and explains uh, almost like the history and science of what you're seeing. Mm. Whereas Kate Blanchett's very oblique very malic, very poetic, you yeah. know, speaking to the, the mother of the universe uh, narration that kind of just comes and fits and starts and it's mostly voiceover free. All, all I can say, and I know other people in this room have seen it and would like to talk about it. I'm obviously uh, <laughs> a big malic fan anyway. That said, I cannot conceive of a world in which somebody watches Voyage of Time and dismisses it. I can't conceive of it. There's you never, live in that world. I li- <laughs> And because th- we're actually in hell right now. We're all <laughs> dead and we're living in hell. <laughs> but we did something very bad while we were but alive. My, <laughs> my, my point is I genuinely, I genuinely can't believe something that full of such clear technical astonishment has been put together and given to us <laughs> on a silver platter and some of us are just going to roll our eyes. I can't believe it. But I, uh, I'll let um, other... Uh, Nick, I, maybe you should talk about Voyage yeah. of Time. Well, I think... In addition to the technical astonishment, which we've maybe come to receive as matter of course, one of the things that I find fascinating about Voyage of Time, and this was certainly there in the last film as well, is how fraught Malick's relationship is to beauty and Mm -hmm. the really violent collision between some of the most sumptuous images you'll ever see on a film screen and these absolute trash images that are you know very raw yeah. very pixelized digital video not composed in any sense whatsoever what i find so thrilling about the trajectory that malik is on is I, like most film lovers, spend most of my time just paralytically bored because (laughs) the film culture, as we know, it kind of consists of two spheres, one of which is the sort of art house sphere and the other of which is the sort of narrative entertainment sphere. And Malick is so far off the reservation and Mm. so completely (laughs) unconcerned with what anyone is doing And I don't think that this would, by any stretch of the imagination, kind of fit the definition of termite art, but it is it is referential to nothing but itself at, you know, at this point, nothing but itself and the experience of the world as Terrence Malick has it and the inner life of Terrence Malick. And I find that incredibly thrilling. If Terrence Malick were somebody who seemed to pay attention to anything that's ever been written about him, you would, you, which I assume he really doesn't because he's making art. You never know. But uh, it would be considered very brave that he extrapolates this movie from the 20 minutes of Tree of Life that some people thought was the most ridiculous part, right? How dare he take on these sorts of big questions? How dare he go so big? Exactly. Uh, you know, our, the cinephiles of our sort tend to prefer the termite art or tend to say that they prefer the termite art. If they're, if they're blown away by something like Tree of Life, often they'll want to kind of have a reserved judgment of it because they have to act like it's... And there's, there's a coolness factor to that, right? There's nothing cool about Terrence Malick's movies. And this is the least cool Terrence Malick movie yet. 
Oh, by I a think country mile. And I, yeah. I, I mean, this just is... by virtue of the format that it's an IMAX movie, which I heard someone trying to make fun of at a party. <laughs> if I could just briefly speak to something that Adam was saying earlier, I, I think the with regards to American Honey, the term like on the nose or something like this came up where we were talking about how Adam felt it was, you know, a bit heavy handed, a bit sort of right on target. And certainly this can be something very off-putting and something that can sink a film, but I've never wholly understood why that is necessarily a pejorative. And one of the things that I find very special, particularly about this film, is it is so exactly what it's about. Mm-hmm. There is no obfuscation. There is no, you know, side entrance. It is addressing in the simplest, most protean language possible. And this is somebody who could definitely, you know, do all manner of wool gathering, who is putting certain basic essential questions in the simplest possible language. You talked about how deeply personal or it comes from Malik. And yet what's... What is, I, I think this is a, a passion project. This is a deeply personal film. And yet what constitutes a personal uh, expression from Terrence Malick is to try to encompass millennia of religious and philosophical thought <laughs> into a yes. script that everyone thinks is is too much or on the nose or whatever. But almost every single word in the script that Kate Blanchett uses is, is recycled language, is borrowed language from texts that exist, from ways of trying to articulate and understand existence. So... It's personal, and yet it's as universal as, as it could possibly attempt to be. I was going to say that this, it, it's funny how one of the recurring things in what we're talking about is that idea of meaning and that idea of on the nose. And in our different ways, we've all kind of, some of us very earnestly, some of us sarcastically, have sort of talked about that as a pejorative. And I agree with Nick, it's not. I mean, a movie that I liked, which is Mia Hansen Loves Things to Come, has some extremely blatant symbolism in it and some real attempts to make meaning. I think it's just a question of what meaning is being made and what is the volume at which, you know, the nose is being struck. And I found I found things to come very moving because Mia Hansen loves attempt to make meaning. I mean, there's like at least a half dozen motifs you could hone in on in that movie that are consistent. There is a cat that is in and of itself, both to the people within the film and surely to her. It has a symbolic function. But it's a movie about characters who are trying to make meaning and a movie about characters that are trying to sort of look for the meaning within text and connect that meaning to their life. So in that sense, I kind of had two thoughts while watching the movie, which is one, these are the sorts of subtleties that are meant to be seen. These are subtleties that are meant to be understood. There is no great need to decode them or a real difficult attempt to understand them. And I respected them very much because to me they had to do with what the film was about. So there's different kinds of overtness and different kinds of on the noseness. But, you know, I agree with what Nick was saying. It's not necessarily pejorative, especially when so many films have no meaning in them at all. No attempt to make meaning, no responsibility to, and there's all kinds of different ways movies can not make meaning as well as not make sense. So we're talking in a pretty rarefied realm. I haven't seen the Malick film, but if I were to see it and, and like it or see it and not like it, I'm not going to hold it against that film for attempting to tackle something so ambitious. And even something like American Honey, which I was talking about before, you know, that's a movie that a real filmmaker made. Someone is trying to make meaning in that movie. That's not the only thing movies can do, by the way. But, uh, but you know, to me, Things to Come was a movie that did that, not necessarily that 
gracefully, maybe not with a great sense of spontaneity, but with real purpose and intelligence and, and feeling. And I find myself moved by it even just thinking about it now. The problem of talking about Malick is, you know, I, I like one film, dislike the next, like the other film. But whenever there's a film that I dislike, I always feel like the meanest person in the room to say so. <laughs> Um, but uh, I mean, in this case, I just found the movie fairly maddening because I, I felt like I was supposed to be feeling wonder, but the language that was being used to express and explore that wonder felt so uh, received and, and, and so things that I had seen before. Totally beautiful, you know, nature footage that would rival anything on planet Earth, the TV show Planet Earth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> put in service of just what felt like for me just a march through time not a voyage of time and I have to, I have to say I, I I thought of the pavement line embrace the senile genius watch him reinvent the wheel because I just felt like I felt that right about the time where the hominids are coming and I'm like I mean you must you must have seen 2001 we've all seen 2001 how could you do this with the total I guess, brilliant naivete of doing that and, and not think that it's part of a larger film historical vocabulary. It's going what, to be interactive. What, what, make, what makes you think that it isn't? It isn't. I mean, that's because how I it's, took it. It's, it. To me, it has, it, it, it feels much more secondhand and he wasn't able to find for, for my money. Feel I can feel like the troops masking against me uh, about this. But uh, believe me, I want to go into this movie and totally fall for it. You know, I, I go I don't go into it thinking, oh, there's that Malik again trying to tackle the big questions. What does he think he is? You know, why can't he just make a good car chase? Like car chases are in the history of the world. They've happened. There have been important car chases. So it's not that I go into that. I really go into it and I want to like, There's a, oh, there's a really the good board. car chase in Badlands. In he Bad got Lands, it out of the way the is. first time. But I, I should say, like, for example, To the Wonder, I wrote at length in praise of. So, you know, I, I'm not. But you didn't like it when I'm you first honest. saw it. Took you um, two watches. It took me two watches to understand it. So I will say maybe it'll take me two watches to understand Voyage of Time. Well, and the IMAX version, too. Yeah, I mean, it, it should be noted that all of the opinions we're issuing right now are garbage because we're just shoveling movies <laughs> ceaselessly into our eyes, which in many cases people have slaved away at for decades, <laughs> layering with meaning, and I'm oh, like I, spatuling myself thing. out of bed, hungover and slumping <laughs> into a seat. Like, eh, nah, don't see it. Nope. I also just want to say, for the record, I'm not saying that Terrence Malick is senile. <laughs> at least, at least, one, at least somebody is not. Eric? But, but, but Nick's point is something I, I care about deeply. I feel like we should always be have, that, that caveat should be implied, if not outright stated, that we have the privilege of seeing films on mass at a festival like this and it's great and we're and it, it, I'm so happy that we get to do it I have these reactions to these films I believe in my my responses but yes they are within the context of me seeing too many films in a day not having a, a solid meal for the entire time and having one film play off against uh, play off another which can be productive and provocative but it has nothing to do with each individual project well maybe we can move on to another documentary to Ang I know several people here saw. <laughs> yeah, if if anything, you bringing that up in that situation, I think was part of uh, part of me in terms of 
my my recollection of that film is certainly influenced by the fact that it started at 9.30 at night and it's a two and a half hour film mm-hmm. with infinitely long shots, um, which I, ad- I adore the film. But when Wang Bing's films are talked about, their length and the duration of sequences and shots are part of what you're taking in. And they become a bit forbidding because of that. And when you see it at a festival starting at 9.30, that's part of, mm-hmm. uh, what, of what you're working through. I don't know if the fact of watching it well on the cusp of nodding out like augmented the experience or enhanced it i will say that the sort of centerpiece of the movie in as much as it has one which is the i should briefly say the subject matter is a ethnic chinese group in the far west of the country on the border with burma or myanmar god knows what it's called these days myanmar uh, who are fleeing civil war in their country and you are throughout the film embedded within their encampments you are actually in some cases in real time kind of trudging along with people who are moving away from artillery and distant gunfire but the centerpiece i speak of which is all uh comprised of sort of campfire conversation or people sort of commiserating in low voices inside tents lit by candlelight some very and it seems strange to say of a movie whose subject matter is so tough but some like almost Georges de la tour looking beautiful candlelit photography and this entire i mean i i think it must comprise maybe half of the running time of the movie is just these people who are so exhausted beyond belief but also living on endorphins and just their you know hearts are going a mile a minute who are so exhausted but cannot sleep and who are just passing these sleepless nights together sorting through their experiences kind of putting the sort of fragments of what they've just been through out on the floor and sifting through them and comparing and borrowing cell phones in order to try to get in touch with a loved one or to get in touch with somebody who knows how to get in touch with a loved one and i think it's pretty magnificent and parenting like throughout parenting putting kids to bed entertaining them feeding them i mean part of what comes through so vividly in it is how fun this is for the kids i mean really you get a sense that the kids are kind of having a blast the guys they're able to i don't know build some wiki ups or you know maybe abandon their families (laughs) and for the women it's just unremitting drudgery and misery yeah and terror and fear and trepidation and nothing to look forward yeah, to. I'm always struck by the the empathy that Wang Bing's films have for their subjects. You know, in the beginning of the film, you see, actually, it's very hard to watch, I find, that in the beginning when you see a husband kick his wife and tell her to get to work and watch after the kids. And she has uh, Isn't no... it a soldier who's kicking the wife? Is it a soldier? Yeah. Okay. A soldier kicking rightly. his wife and, and telling... A soldier kicking a woman, I'll, I'll say. And she doesn't flinch, actually. She just stares right back at him. And he captures the nuances of these people so well because he completely embeds himself in with the camps. And... 
The film takes place over various locations, and they're really the most marginalized people in Chinese society. I mean, of course, they're literally living on the margins, but they also belong to indigenous groups. I mean, there are some who are Han, which is the most dominant Chinese people, and and Tang is a, a, an indigenous and very marginalized uh, Chinese people. At one point, you see a woman who can't speak, she's deaf and mute, communicate with her friend. And the two of them are just having a great time, you know. And at, at some point, you even lose sight of how, how terrible their condition is. Oh, Nick and Mick mentioned how Georges de la Tour quality shots uh, exist in the film, which is even more remarkable because when the film starts, it doesn't look like anything at all. It looks like a very cheap DV ca digital camera, and it's not about shot making. At no point in the film does it feel like it's about right. shot making. So the fact that remarkable shots come through mm -hmm. make them feel like even more significant, because yeah. that's not the idea of the film. What you were describing, I was listening to you talk about the film I haven't seen, but I was thinking of the movie that we did watch this morning, Human Surge, where, I mean, in some ways, that's a movie of shots, phenomenal shots, planned shots, sequence shots, camera, choreography. I've been thinking about Human Surge all day. So when Nick was also talking about the Malick film and the webcam stuff in there that actually looks better than some of the stuff that's actually sort of out being operated as, as camera movement. But I mean, the reason I brought that movie up wasn't just to segue out to something I'd seen, but at film festivals, things are often praised or criticized as movies of a moment. And we were sort of talking about Moonlight. I haven't seen anything that felt more contemporary than Human Surge at this festival. The eternal search for the cyber cafe, the incredible focus on different kinds of labor and alienated labor, the connection between, uh, you know, dignity and labor or the lack of dignity and labor. And it's a challenging movie. That is not an easy movie to necessarily, even for some people with I think good attention spans to kind of sit through, but that's really something. And and unlike almost any of the movies we've talked about, except the Wang Bing, which is why it was so nice to turn to it, it's a movie that doesn't really have a big push of any kind behind it. It shows in the wavelength section here, and there's not a lot of received wisdom on it because it's small. And I think really kind of amazing. Yeah, um, I agree. I. I... I, immediately after uh, Eric and I find each other and we and we had a similar re reaction, which was, um, I think you said you loved being lost in it or something like that, because it's a movie you can't really get your bearings with because it doesn't really feel, look or move like any other movie, which is always very exciting for critics who watch movies all the time. But it, uh, and in terms of movies that I've seen here since I got here on Friday, that and The Malick were my two favorites, which is interesting because there are similarities and you're right one of the most striking things for anyone who watches the malik they will be very struck that the first thing you see is is this extremely low-grade video and the human surge uh, has three sections basically the first section was shot on 16 it's beautiful green beautiful the first section it takes place in argentina the second section and the second section is in mozambique and that was actually shot on super 16 but then filmed off uh, a monitor off a computer monitor yeah and it, lo and it and looks like it yeah, but it's also beautiful in its own way. And then the third section is the Philippines, and that's shot on video. That's on the red camera, I believe. So uh, you you kind of keep readjusting the way you see, and you don't quite know when you're in, into this new section. But then it's it's like this um, 
subliminal thing where you realize you're actually watching a new film. It's not really not a film you can or can't spoil, but I will say that there there's some graphic there's some graphic sexual footage in this film, but of a nature that is so casual. Casual that I Warm can't imagine even. anyone like, getting offended by it, no, right? I mean, it's very I would graphic. love to talk about what happened. <laughs> of all the people in this room, I would love the most to talk about uh, what happens in those scenes. But um, I, I really do, I, I found it disarming, even though what it's saying is kind of horrifying. The fiction documentary thing, because these appear to be observed people in real habitats, and they are, but there's these things that are said off the cuff and off the top of their head that are so apropos that it's like, you know, did the film find its aesthetic and its purpose out of what he out of what people right. said? Right. Or is this a sort of shaped and collaborative thing? No, I was just gonna say, and those things are on the nose too, but they're very interesting exactly. and smart. This is the kind of film that you could write that little c capsule and describe what it's about. You could, you know, say that this is about the way we are all um, commodified yep. and the way we're the, you know, all the boundaries are collapsing and it's all one world and we're all products and, and we're, we're united, but we're not united. We're isolated. We're connected. But the movie doesn't play like that. No, no. The movie plays like you're just coming upon these ideas naturally, the way you come upon ideas when you walk around. I mean, most of this movie is just following people Walking. around in a very different kind of aesthetic from the Dardens. They're following shots, but that camera is barely keeping up with them. The camera is shaking all over the place. It's very nauseating. But there's something liberating about that, too. I love that you're never quite close enough to the person just trying to catch up. I love talking about movies with you, Michael. You're right. I heard what you just said was like what was in my head all day. I was trying to think about the movie. Like it's far enough away that there's a respectful distance. It doesn't assume that it is these people or that it's with these people, but just the fact that it keeps following, that there's an urgency, that it doesn't give up and doesn't let people wander out of view. I just want to say that on top of everything, we've got a great pull quote for this film from you, which I believe was nauseatingly liberated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Pretty good because we're at a film festival and we've all seen, we've all probably seen like 10 new movies in the past 36 hours. Can we go around and say a movie that we haven't mentioned yet that we really liked? Well, sure. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll mention the film that I just saw most recently. I saw the uh, Douglas Gordon, I Had Nowhere to Go mm. film, which is about Jonas Mikas, which is in the wavelength section, of course, of the festival. And it's where you expect to see works of avant-garde. This is a deeply avant-garde piece while also being very much on the surface about what it is. It's, it's, it's a film about uh, Jonas Mikas, uh, the founder of Anthology Film Archives, Lithuanian filmmaker and critic and living legend. It's a film in which he narrates his own journals, his own diary. And the, the period of time that spanned is really, I believe, just 1943 to 1951. There may be a few entries from beyond that. And it's 90% black screen. So really the film is comprised of that narration. Mm. And you're trained on the screen the entire time. And he's and it's, Douglas Gordon is, 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 is brilliant about like when to bring in picture, when to have image, and what he's showing you because you're waiting for the image. And then what you wind up seeing is not necessarily satisfying, but very purposeful. And often it's an echo of something that he mentioned that Jonas Mikas mentioned 15 minutes prior or that he's not going to mention for 20 minutes. It's some thing that seems from left field but then has a real purpose to it. I found it just very, very moving. And it's the sort of film that, though film festival audiences are often the most captive audiences you'll find, I actually would rather see this film in a non-film festival setting mm -hmm. because it's the sort of film where 
half the audience disappears because they're executives who are looking for whether or not they can do something with this and they're gone in 15 does minutes. This, does this make it film got legs? Yeah. In a, with an audience of people who are eager to see that film and have some sense of what they're about to see, I think it would be a fantastic th- theatrical experience with people staring at a blank screen for, mm. for a fair amount of the film. Well, I guess to return to my championing of the thuddingly obvious, uh, I will say that yesterday I, I don't know if enjoyed is exactly the word, but I returned to the world of Uruk Seidel and I saw his, uh, his latest safari, which after a afternoon of gauzy and evasive films, there was something quite refreshing about sitting down and experiencing a polemic essentially arguing for the elimination of the human race, which is what the movie is, takes place at a safari camp. And the principal characters are documentary, I should should mention briefly. The principal characters are a family of four uh, Austrians who are on a hunting holiday. The owners and operators uh, of the camp and some other assorted and sundry campgoers and the various houseboys and indigenous laborers who are employed in all manner of functions around the camp. And you get to watch the actual process of stalking, killing, and then the processing of the dead animal, the removal of the skin. You go into the abattoir uh, where you watch the dirty you know, work being done, sinews being hacked through with axes, picks, so on and so forth. And you also get to hear these people offering their justification in the cases where they feel that they're... Um, that it's necessary to provide a justification, uh, their justification for why they do this. And they speak well for themselves. And you can't necessarily say that they're off base when they say, you know, the, the herd needs to be called. Uh, these older animals need to be taken out. It's really the you know only way to responsibly treat this wildlife. But what becomes abundantly clear through the course of the movie is that these people are precisely the old useless animals that they are themselves describing and the only way that the world could be preserved is through a calling of the herd where these people themselves are put out. I don't say that I exactly endorse it, but there's no doubt that he is a man who knows exactly what he's on about when he's making a movie. And there is just a sheer blunt force trauma about it that I admire tremendously. My favorite film of the festival thus far is the first film that I saw, which is Certain Women by Kelly Reichard. And it's one of the great works of art that I feel absolutely transformed by after seeing it. I think a great deal of it, it's a, it's a portrait of three women, and I think a great deal of it was shot on film because it's got this beautiful grain. And I hear, I mean, it makes sense. It was produced by Todd Haynes, uh, who's a great lover of 35 millimeter. And I just find that the 
the actresses give such incredible performances and it's such a very subtle character study very uh, modest in its presentation and its conceit but also very striking at the same time i'll just take this moment to praise aquarius which we haven't talked about i won't say too much about it i guess people have it was a can so people are maybe more aware of it than some other discoveries but um, it's Kleber Mendoncha Fijo. It's a Brazilian film. I, I just found this to be completely enrapturing, first frame to last. It's a long movie, but it's engrossing on a character level. It's aesthetically daring in parts, but it's always uh, linear. It's about uh, Sonia Braga gives this wonderful performance as this 70-year-old woman, I believe, or almost she's almost she's turning 70. Anyway, the, the real, the, she's the last holdout in her building, the real estate company has come in and they're trying to make them to luxury condo. She's been there for decades and the apartment had belonged to an older relative of hers. So it's been in the family for generations and she refuses to move out. It just uh, escalates from there. It's about uh, an older woman with a vibrant sexual life. It's about, uh, it's a very political film about what's actually going on right now in Brazil. It's become controversial there and they're actually trying to bury the film. And I think that there is a risk that maybe people won't see it. So I, I urge everyone to see Aquarius because it's, it's completely enjoyable as well. It's, it's a beautiful work of art that anybody could enjoy. I don't know if it's my favorite film, but uh, I really like this documentary. No, I wouldn't call it documentary. It's more like a curated anthology of Lumiere films, which I saw today, which had a live commentary by Cherry Framo, the, um, who's the, the, I don't know, the head man at uh, the Cannes Film Festival. And also, this is under under his job title as uh, the I don't know, programmer of the Lyon Institute. So it's basically a curated anthology of Lumiere films categorized, and each of them are only about 50 seconds long. And it's, and it's just amazing because you could just contemplate each of them. Um, and he's giving you this background live. So it was also an interesting variation on everything because... Here was a film event where there was actual also live commentary, which also takes it back to, you know, early cinema. So it was just an interesting background to seeing the newest of film and here seeing quite literally the first films <laughs> ever made. So that was nice. Excellent. Well, it's funny that you bring that up, actually, because the film that I was going to mention is Daguerreotype by Kiyoshi Kurosawa, which is his first French film. And uh, like, a, like a lot of his films, it's very preoccupied with death and ghosts. But also there's kind of an interesting little, I wouldn't say a B story. It's actually kind of a big, it's a big component of the film. Um, sort of the way that, you know, developments happen and the process of gentrification and what that looks like. And it had really great performances. And I think even more than that, I think it just shows off what a great composer of images Kiyoshi Kurosawa is and just like it it has a very I'm gonna say it has kind of a predictable twist but even so he makes it he does it so well that you just kind of don't care anyway thank you all for coming it was wonderful to have you on you've been listening to the film comet podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, 
and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.